may be seated. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. If you're visiting with us, um, so glad that you're here. Uh, we are returning back to our study of 1 Corinthians for the next uh, six weeks, and or five weeks, I think. Um, so we find ourselves back in 1 Corinthians 15. If you are visiting with us, if you or have been visiting with us, um, if you want to leave your information or get on our email newsletter, um, you can just fill out one of those visitor cards that are in front of you. Put that in the offering plates, either in the back or the front up here. As Jeff had mentioned, this is our Deacons Fund offering uh, week, the second Sunday. Uh, or sorry, uh, we take up a deacon's fund. I guess it's the first Sunday we take up a deacon's fund. And that the deacons will distribute to people who are in need. Often goes to help offset counseling expenses, emergency situation, unexpected expenses that come up. Sometimes meals for people when they're in crisis needs. A wide variety um, of things that the deacons will use to help take care of some emergency and even long-term needs of people in the congregation. Last thing, um, we are going to make us try a switch for the distribution of the Lord's Supper for the next four weeks. Um, instead of passing out twice, we're going to only pass it out once. The cups are double stacked. Um, there will be bread in the bottom cup, wine or juice in the top cup. We will still hold those as we partake of them together. We're just going to see if maybe we can smooth out some things, um, make a few more adjustments over the coming weeks. Um, I often say things sound great in my mind, um, and then we try them, and they're total failures. So we're going to try them and see, um, and, uh, and, and just see if we can smooth things out. Okay, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, starting with verse 1. This is God's Word. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And by his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I. But the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. This is God's word. Would you join with me as we pray and ask his blessing on his word preached? Lord Jesus, you are seated on the throne of heaven and simultaneously in the midst of your congregation as we gather. For in some mysterious way, we have been brought into the heavenlies 
We too, with the saints who have gone before us and the elders casting down their crowns and the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We too are captured up in that at this moment. That is the reality. That is the most true reality that we experience. And we experience by faith, one day by sight. And so we pray, Lamb of God that was slain for the sins of the world, step forth with all of your power and preach the gospel to us by your Spirit. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, Comfort us where we need to be comforted and encourage us where we are discouraged. But in all things, lift our eyes that we could see your glory. For it's in your name that we pray. Amen. There are um, sort of a universal rule that we tend to conform to what we value. Subtle ways, it's often, it, it happens without us even thinking about it. But under the surface, at all times, we always will conform to what we value. It's a scientifically proven fact that people tend to look like their dogs. I don't know who runs studies on this, but multiple studies have been run and it's proven over and over and over again that people tend to look like their dogs. Now, that should be a warning to you if you're considering a new dog in your home. Be careful what you choose. We also tend to look like our group. We take on the fashion, ideas, tone, values of the group that we belong to, the countercultural group, whatever that is at the moment, when it was in the 60s and today, whatever it is, the countercultural group always tends to look like each other. When you take a new job, you actually work in an office, and after a while, you'll notice that your clothing begins to change. You'll begin to dress more like the people in your office dress without even meaning to. We conform to the things we value. One of the strangest things about this is when you get into a new activity. You tend, before you even learn the activity, to buy the clothes and the equipment to go with the activity. I've got to dress the part. I've got to inhabit the space, whatever. I'm going to get into kayaking, so I've got to buy all new clothes to get into kayak. I'm going to get into golf. I've got to buy all new equipment so that I can get into this thing that I've actually probably never done much time with. Right? We conform, just naturally, we begin to conform to whatever it is that we value. And so it's, it's with intention, it's really intentional that we need to pull back ever so often and get reoriented to what we really value as the people of God. Not what we say we value, not our aspirational values, not the things that we wish we valued, but to look at our lives and say, what is it that I am being conformed to? Because that is the thing that I really value. So as we get back to 1 Corinthians 15, remember that what's going on in 1 Corinthians is Paul is writing a follow-up letter to the church in Corinth in modern-day Greece. Paul has planted this church a few years earlier on his second missionary journey, and he is writing a letter back to them in response to a letter that they had written to them and in response 
to things that were being reported to him. He's in Ephesus. People had come from Corinth. They're saying, this is what's going on. So he's hearing reports, and he's received a letter. And this letter of 1 Corinthians is his response to those things. And so Paul is having an agenda presented to him throughout the letter, either by reports, and he's putting down problems that he heard about, or things that they had asked him about. And we've seen these markers in the letter. I don't know if you remember this, but periodically through the letter, Paul will start a new section with now concerning, now concerning the betrothed, now concerning food, sacrifice to idols, now concerning spiritual gifts, now concerning the divisions that are amongst you. All of these things, as an agenda is being put to them, he's begun to answer. But a pivot happens in verse 1 of 1 Corinthians 15. Because now Paul is pivoting to his agenda. Verse 1. Now, notice he doesn't say now concerning. He now pivots to now I would remind you, brothers, and he means brothers and sisters, of the gospel. I preach to you which you received and which you now stand and by which you are being saved. He is He is now with his opportunity to say, here are the things that I value as an apostle sent by Jesus to you, the church. Now I want to install the greatest value as the center of the church once again. A pastor in Chicago tells a story of performing a wedding where the groom was an amateur golf champion. And the pastor decided he was going to use a golf ball as an illustration for his homily during the wedding. So he had pulled the best man aside, given him the best man the golf ball, and said, I need you to bring this. And at just the right time in the ceremony, I am going to ask you for the golf ball. You give me the golf ball. I'm going to use it for this knock it out of the park illustration or maybe drive it down the middle illustration. So at the time, it's following the ceremony comes up. The pastor looks at the best man. And the best man's like, yeah, I got this. Reaches in pocket, pulls out the golf ball. And then a shock of terror goes over his face once he realizes that he had forgotten the bride's ring. But I think this is what happens in the Christian life too often. And in the church in general is that we tend to focus on peripheral and secondary things and we lose the centrality of Christ and him crucified. And, and often those pivots are all, almost always good things. They're not unimportant things that, that we pivot to. They can be things like missions and evangelism, all good things that God's people should care about, justice issues in the world, political concerns, evaluating cultural trends, all good things, not unimportant things, not things that the Bible has nothing to say about, all things that should be considered but not central. And that shift is seldom purposeful. It's always a slow slide of directing our attention to a new value. I'm thankful for D.A. Carson who pointed this out years ago. He says that the church never jumps to theological liberalism and abandons the gospel. Actually, it's a slow slide that starts this way. It just assumes the gospel and doesn't install it as central. That's the first step. We forget what's primary and essential 
when Paul gets to his agenda, notice again what he says. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remind you. I'm going to remind you of something that you've already learned. And he's actually playing with words here. I'm going to remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you. Now, gospel in the original language is actually a compound word. Two words put together. Good news or good announcement. In the ancient world, a good news or a good announcement was technical language for a military victory. The announcement that an event had been, a war had been fought, a battle had been won, and now this event is being reported out into the world. We actually saw this, if you're following along in our Seeing Jesus Together journal reading in 2 Samuel 18 this week. Absalom, David's son, had rebelled against David. David had to flee out of his royal city. And when Absalom is defeated in battle, two men are sent to David to announce the news. David's enemies had been defeated. Now God's kingdom and David's throne were once again at peace. The war was over. We have won. And it was said of these men when they saw them coming, that man's running like he has Good news. That's what the gospel is. The gospel at its core is news. It's not primarily a call to action. It's not primarily a call to arms. It is an announcement that God has won in the person of Jesus. He has defeated all his and our enemies at the cross. And now his kingdom reigns for Ever and ever and ever. That is such a pivotal shift that the heart of living the Christian life is just learning how to live in light of that reality. And you see this here again. Paul's just pointing out historical facts as he summarizes the gospel. Things that God has done. That were done in history. In time and space and things that God had done in and for sinners. God's actions in the world. Verse 3. I delivered to you as first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised On the third day, in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Peter, to Cephas, and then to the rest of the apostles. And then he appeared to 500 people, most of whom are still living. You see what he's doing? He's inviting scrutiny. Go check it out. Check my my report of the events that happened. These are all things that God had done. And you can, they're eyewitnesses. You can check it out if you want to. I'm going to give you the list of people who've seen it. Any of them will have the same story because these things were done by God in Jesus Christ. And they were done in accordance to the scriptures. You know, he repeats that a number of times. What he's saying is this, if you want to know what is central to what God is doing in the world, all you have to do is start with the beginning of his Bible, and he's telling you 
all throughout the pages what he is going to accomplish in this world. He's laid out his agenda, and in laying out his agenda, he has laid out his heart. And then notice this. Hidden here a little bit. I would remind you again, verse 1, brothers and sisters of the gospel, I preached to you. Now, preached hides a little bit of what Paul's actually saying. Because he grabs the same Greek word for gospel and then uses that for preached. It's not the typical word for preached. There's another Greek word for preached. It's literally, I'd love to see someone have the courage to translate it this way. I want to remind you of the gospel that I gospeled you with. Gospeling is what Paul does because it is what Jesus does for his people. It's what God's agenda in the world is. I want to remind you of the gospel that I gospeled you with because being gospel is what transforms us into the image of Jesus. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you're being saved. Verb tenses, Paul's just loading up verb tenses here, which you received the past tense, obviously, here, this is how they came. He says, this is the gospel. I gospeled you with the gospel. You received it. As a result, you came into God's kingdom. As a result of receiving the gospel, your sins were forgiven. As a result of receiving the gospel, you became God's people. You did not, don't have to do anything, just simply receive this news. But then he says... On which you now stand. In which you now stand. Now here he's moved from past tense to perfect tense. Perfect tense conveys a sense of this was something that happened in the past. And its effect is being carried into the present and into the future. In other words you received the gospel when you became a Christian. You should still be standing there now. Don't move past it. There's nothing more. There's not next level. There's no moving beyond. There's no leaving it behind. What you received, you should still be standing in it. Because then, in verse 2, by which you are being saved. It's present tense. But it's also in a particular verb form that conveys they're just passively receiving what God's doing. They're sitting there, standing in this truth, and as a result, God is acting on them. The historical events of Jesus' death, resurrection, happen outside of us. Those happened 2,000 years ago, objectively in history, but the way they get applied to us is not in any other way but standing In the gospel. And as a result, God works in us. He accomplished salvation outside of us. That is announced to us in the gospel. And then he changes us 
with that very gospel. That's why Paul's like, okay, now my agenda. I got one thing. I'm going to gospel you again. There are two reasons that we do not experience more of the power of God in our lives, individually, in our church as a whole. The first is that we don't pray. We work, we plan, we scheme by our own strength with our own resources. God's promised His church is going to move forward. The gates of hell are going to shudder as His church moves forward in this world. Things will change when the gospel is applied to our lives and moves out into the world. But He's also promised that we will receive the Spirit for that work and God's power will be unleashed when we pray. That's reason number one. Reason number two, that we experience so little of God's power in our lives is we so quickly shift from the utter sufficiency of the gospel. The message of the cross has this tremendous ability to change every single area of life. That's why Paul says, I, I made it my ambition to know nothing amongst you but Christ Jesus and Him crucified. And because that is more than just news in the hands of God, it's a transforming power. The, word, the kingdom of God does not consist simply in words, but in power. In 2010, a massive earthquake shuddered Concepcion, Chile. Just absolutely shuddered. It was so powerful that it was estimated to be 300, over 350 times more powerful than any atomic bomb that has ever been built. As a result, it actually was so powerful, it actually shortened the day around the world. It shortened the day by milliseconds. So powerful that 7,500 miles away in Lake Pontchartrain, Louisiana, you could see waves all day long from the power of this earthquake. So powerful that this city of a quarter million people moved, literally moved 10 feet to the west. Now, you can imagine what that did to Apple Maps. I'm sure ways adjusted immediately. It, <laughs> Apple is probably still trying to figure out how to get Siri to get directions around Concepcion. But you see, as you looked out, everything looked the same. But on the surface, it all seemed so similar. But under the surface, everything had shifted by the tremendous power that had been at work. That's the way the gospel changes us. On the surface, we all may look the same in every interaction of being gospeled with the gospel underneath the surface because it is God's power that is being exerted in our lives. It is completely impossible for any of our hearts to stay the same. And that's why Paul says in verse 3 that this is of first importance. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. He's not making this up. He's like, Jesus gave this to me. Now I'm giving it to you. And this is of first importance. Now, 
first importance doesn't mean that he gave this to them at the beginning of the ministry when the church was planted and then moved on from it. First importance means that these are the fundamentals. And you don't move past the fundamentals. Not just first in terms of time, but first in terms of priority. You don't learn the alphabet and then go, well, I've got my ABCs down, now I'm moving on. What you do is you learn how to use the alphabet. You form words with the alphabet. And then with those words, you shape the world around you. You never move past the fundamentals. It was said of Jordan, almost everybody who played with Michael Jordan said this. The thing that made Jordan great was not his raw talent, but his commitment to the fundamentals. Jordan himself said it this way. You can't skip the fundamentals if you want to be the best. Some guys look for instant gratification, so maybe they skip a few steps. It's like they're trying to focus on a masterpiece and they've never mastered the scales. You can't do one without the other. The minute, he says, you get away from the fundamentals, whether it's proper technique, work ethic, mental preparation, the bottom can fall out of your game. You have to monitor the fundamentals constantly because the only thing that changes will be your attention to them. The fundamentals never change. Get the fundamentals down and the level of everything you do will rise. If that's true just in anything that we do, how much more true is it when the power of God is married to those fundamentals? They are of first important. The things you learn never leave behind, but instead rehearse over and over and over again so that they get deeper into my heart and then mind is shaped by them so that I can then see the world through the lens of the gospel. Myself in every interaction that I have. And Paul gives us basic storyline in the categories, gives us basic categories of storyline, verse 3, 4, 4. That he died for our sins in accordance to the scriptures, that he was buried, and then he was raised for the dead. Look at that first one. That he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. It was not just that Jesus died on the cross 2,000 years ago, but it was a death For our sins. And that language of for is the language of substitution. When he gives us the supper, he says this. This is my body for you. It's in your place as your substitute for your sins. Not just just a death to show love, but a death to redeem. A death to atone. Because sin at its core is saying to God, no. Not your way, my way. Not your preferences, my preferences. Not your glory, my glory. Not your will, my will. And that's why sin incurs his wrath. Rebellion against God in the most personal way. And in the most personal way, it's treason against the king who rules all things, provides all things for us, has given us life, breath, and everything that we have. And to say no to him is rebellion, provokes his wrath. And in every country, a traitor has one penalty, death. 
we violated the eternal glory of the Creator and committed cosmic treason and stand every one of us under the eternal condemnation of God. And so God put forth His Son for our sins. The gospel is easy to remember. If you're not a Christian, I hope you're beginning to see the center of what the church should be about, the center of what God is about, is just simply this. Jesus gets what we deserve so we could get what He deserves. And then the cross becomes a source of joy but it also becomes a grid that we can see all of life through. Begin to even ask the question, like just the most personal question you can ask, what do you do with your sins? I mean, that is the most basic human need. What do you do with your sins? What do you do with your guilt? What do you do with your shame? And the answer is, Christ has done all that needs to be done. I just simply receive it, stand in it, and I'm being changed by it. The answer to that is, it's finished. Years ago, a football team in Texas <clears throat> decided that they wanted to play against the students who were in the maximal, maximum security correctional prison. Those, they just, we're gonna, we want to play for them, with them. They don't get a lot of opportunities, but we want to play with them. And so the fans, this is what the, the coach of that team sent out a note. This is what we're going to do. We're going to send out a note, and when that team of prisoners comes out onto the field, everybody cheer, celebrate them. And so when the boys of the Gainesville State Prison played their first set of downs, they heard something they had never heard before. They heard fans cheering for them. One of them said, we can tell people are a little afraid of us when we come to the games. You can see it in their eyes. They're looking at us like we're criminals, but these people were yelling for us by our names. You see, when those prisoners felt the game over, they were shackled and led back away. But for those who are in Christ, that is the constant experience. Where the Father says, my wrath is gone. Because Christ died for your sins according to my plan. And the cross is the manifestation of both the love of God and His righteousness. And where his righteous wrath is satisfied by an act of his love, it's his love that remains. But applying that to every area of life, that's the hard work. And then what Paul rehearses in these four, four verses, death, burial, resurrection of the Son of God, is what we should just rehearse constantly until we are so conformed by it that we begin to intuitively apply it to every area of life. This is exactly what Paul has been doing throughout the entire letter. He's dealt with the problem of power. 
Corinthians loved power. They are a Greek church in uh, and, and a Roman empire. They loved power. Paul's like, fine, you want power? Power is in the message of the cross. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, he writes to them. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. There's divisions in the church in Corinth. It's because you've rallied around a particular person or figure or idea that is secondary to the gospel. And those are things that are just crumbs. Those people that you're rallying around, they're just crumbs that have fallen from Christ's table to you. So he writes, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, they're all yours because you're Christ. Christ is God's. Sexual immorality in the church. But the cross, Paul says, Bob, but the cross. Don't you realize that you're a brand new people, a new lump of flesh, a new dough that God's baking into the world? So cleanse out the old lemon leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ our Passover lamb has been sacrificed for the cross. Every instance, whatever they're dealing with, you have a problem. Corinthians are like, what about my rights? Don't I have rights in this world? Yes, you have rights, but the cross. If food makes my brother stumble, then I'll never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. What about, what about my other rights? But the cross, I lay everything down so that others can share in the riches of Christ with me. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in his blessings. It gets increased because of the cross. Jesus is going to give his blessings to everyone who asks him. Who all come in repentance and faith. They'll give it. So the more of us that come, the more of the blessings we all get to share together. The gospel is God's power in our lives that shifts everything. And we are not done shifting until we see all of life in light of the cross. That's why we often say the Christian never moves beyond the gospel. We just move deeper into it. Because what you value, you will be conformed to. Which is exactly what Paul says. That beholding the glory of Christ, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. This is what we've received. This is what we stand in. And this is what we are being saved by. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we come to the table, oh, how fitting it is that we would receive our nourishment from signs and seals that point us to the cross. For it is what unites us all together as one. One body in union with you. Receiving one gospel by one spirit. Experiencing one baptism. Professing one faith. And sitting together as one family at one table. Partaking of one food. For you are enough 
and your gospel is more than sufficient for whatever it is that we are facing. Holy Spirit, take these ordinary elements of bread and wine and make our hearts come alive again to you. We pray this in your name, our Savior. Amen.